We're here today with Mike Holmes. Mike is the CEO of Boundary Waters, is that correct? Cook Area Health Services, but we do business now as Scenic Rivers. Health Scenic Service. Rivers, that's it. Boundary Waters is part it's of your... Boundary Waters Canoe Area. We're yeah. Tucked up next to the Scenic wilderness. Scenic Rivers, I love that time, that name. But Cook Area has been its name for years now, right? Since we started in 1979. Wow. Uh, uh, and you cover a slightly larger area than you covered when you first when began we, servicing, but still. When we first started, it was a, we, we started in this community of 800 people, and we were tucked up right next to the Boundary Waters, single site, two physicians, two dentists, myself, and, a, and there were 13 of us in total. Uh-huh. Uh, the two of the two physicians, one just tired, retired in December, and one retired this spring. They both stayed with you over they, they all stayed, these years. They stayed with us in that site for 40 years. Wow. Now, I'm not the only one left from those original 13 staff members. We have a dental assistant that started with us in 1979. She took some time off to raise a family, but she's still working chairside at our clinic, dental clinic in the wow. original community. Over the years, as health centers expanded, we expanded our sites, we added new access points, we added services, and so right now we have six medical clinics and four dental clinics in an 8,000 square mile service area. That's just slightly smaller than the state of New Jersey. Wow. So we're the only access points to care. There are two small critical access hospitals in this service area. One's 14 beds, one's 20 beds. But it's our physicians that staff them, uh, staff the emergency room, staff our clinics, long-term care. They do long-term care rotations, and they'll still do an occasional home visit. And what's your what's your clinical staff looking like today? Physicians, right uh, now, PAs, MPs? right now we have thirteen physicians. Wow. Uh, we have nine mid levels, a combination of nurse practitioners and PAs. Mm -hmm. uh, we have eight dentists right now. We have two dental therapists, which is a new discipline for Minnesota. And essentially, it is a mid-level provider. And so the dental therapists will do restorations and exams. And that allows our dentists to do more complex Which is treatment. probably, I mean, I think for those who want to rise to the challenge, that's a great relief to get rid of the, the, not get rid of, but to not have to focus on some of the more mundane. Well, there's, there's such a shortage of, of dentists and, and oral healthcare access in rural areas, especially mm -hmm. in rural Minnesota. If you look at the average age of dentists, it's going to be over the age of 55, and they're winding down their practices. They can't sell their practices, and so there's all of this unmet need unmet demand, a need for care, yeah. even if you have dental insurance, and not many people have dental insurance, but for the low-income patients and for the Medicaid patients, it's, it's impossible to find someone that will take you unless you're going to a health yeah. center. We have dental patients that are traveling 120, 130 miles one way to access care wow. in our clinics. So the demand is there if we can 
staff and find enough dental providers. Sure. And I'm sure that's true for rural areas, not only throughout Minnesota, but all across the, the center of the country. The, the shortage of practitioners, especially in the rural, rural areas, is just one of the challenges <coughs> in the workforce. You know, it's a challenge to find primary care workforce uh, for our health centers. But in the, in the rural areas, you're not only combating the, the patient population and the, the short numbers, shortage numbers of primary care practitioners, but then you're trying to relocate them to areas, geographic areas, where it may not be attractive. Maybe it's attractive to the practitioner, but it might not be attractive to the families of the practitioners. And so you, you look at challenges with additional job opportunities mm -hmm. and, and uh, resources and, and things like that. Yeah. So the, the small communities do have an extra challenge trying to find people that will serve in those communities and provide the staffing yeah. to maintain those access points. Wow. Now, I want to roll it back a little bit here and ask you what attracted you to this career? Uh, and when you began, what were your impressions and what were your top priorities uh, when you began your career in healthcare in, with health centers? I started in healthcare in 1977. It was early 77 in one of the small community hospitals, long before there was a critical access hospital designation, mm -hmm. had an opening for a business manager. And I had recently returned from California. And so it was attractive enough, and I knew some of the uh, people in the community because it's where I went to high school. Mm -hmm. And so I, I joined the hospital, and the hospital was running on very thin margins. In the previous six, seven years, it had been open and closed off and on because of a lack of physicians. Uh -huh. the, the community would have a physician come in, they would stay for a while, they would leave. Every time the physician left, there went the primary care access point in the clinics, there went the care for long-term care patients, there went, and the hospital would have to close. So needless to say, the community was really concerned about trying to find a way to provide stability mm -hmm. in an environment so that they could bring in physicians and practitioners, so just to maintain access. Um, a health maintenance organization came into the community, brought in that first physician, the one that just retired last December, and uh, he was fresh on a residency, and he started his practice, and he was, he was well received by the community. Well, the HMO decided that it was not in their best interests to operate small rural practices. It just didn't meet their uh -huh. staff model because there wasn't significant population base. And they decided to refocus. And so they spun off and said, we're closing these uh, primary care practices. And it was ourselves, a, our community. It was another community that has a health center still in Minnesota. It was Sawtooth Mountain Clinic up in Grand Marais. Oh, sure. And there was a third that was down towards the cities. They gave us a deadline and the community was scrambling to try and figure out what to do because there was a second physician that had just come. This was the one that retired this past spring and there was no stability in infrastructure. Uh -huh. the, the practice structure was in flux and there, there was great concern that if these two physicians left, 
no one else would be there to take their place. So we started looking around and the, the board members and community members uh, started looking around and they came across something called the Rural Health Initiatives Program. This was one of the mm -hmm. forerunner programs before they were all consolidated into the Bureau Authority. Sure. The original premise on the Rural Health Initiatives Program was you get three years worth of seed money and then you should have a fully established private yeah, practice. function on your It was own three years and out. Well, a year and a half into that Rural Health Initiatives Program, we were successful in our application and we formed a nonprofit to start the initial center, what became uh, Scenic Rivers. Uh, the Reagan administration came in, David Stockman came in as the director of OMB, and, autom and immediately they cut 20% out of health funding. So yeah. Minnesota at that time had 13 health center sites. We went from 13 to 5. Wow. And then we started that long process of clawing back and trying to regain what we had lost in that initial defunding cycle or reduction in funding cycle. But we survived it. And uh, along with all the other uh, organizations at the time, and then <clears throat> the new access points, as new federal money came along, uh, we were able to expand the number of, of access points, the number of services. And so that group of 13 original people is now 140. <laughs> and one, instead of wow. one community in a town of 800 people, which is last population, and now it's about 650, uh, we're now in six different communities with medical and dental clinics. So we've got six medical clinics and we've got four dental clinics. Uh, our physicians are split between our two main sites, which are adjacent to the hospitals. And then our other four medical clinics are uh, 40 to 50 miles away from our two main sites. Yeah. And we staff them with, with mid-level providers. And so we try and match the staffing to the community sizes and knowing that transportation is such a huge issue. Yeah. There's no public transportation in northeastern Minnesota. It's, it's a frontier in a remote area. It's sparsely populated. You know, the population density is three people per square mile. <laughs> so there's no interstate, there are no interstates. Yeah. There's no cell phone service on once you get beyond eight miles from town. There's no internet. Wow. There's uh, it's no cable television. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's a different environment. And so our whole intent was to do whatever we could to keep these access points open. Initially was the, the first one in Cook. And that's what we did. I mean, it was, the, the whole point of it was to, to maintain primary care access. And as we grew, then we started developing other services for the community and other services through the health Oral centers. health, behavioral Oral health, health was part, in, interestingly enough, oral health was always a part of our initial site. But in some of the subsequent expansions, they were medical only. And we've come in after the fact now to expand oral health services in a number of our other communities mm -hmm. as it's much more critical now as a part of the care delivery system. And now we're in the process of adding behavioral health services and telebehavioral health services. So we're, uh, <clears throat> all of our sites are on a common EMR platform. We're all linked with high-speed bandwidth. We're on a common, you know, so we're on a common EMR, but as a part of developing the, the bandwidth for the electronic health record, 
Uh, we also have now boosted the speed so we can do telehealth services. So we can have behavioral health workers in one site and maybe have a patient that's 120, 130 miles away. And you're able to have that virtual contact. And it's a face-to-face right -face contact. Yeah. That's, you think that, not that it is the future, but it points the way to a viable future for rural health care? I think it's I think it's viable in certain locations. Now, when we talk about telehealth services to a patient at home, that patient still has to have enough bandwidth for you to conduct a visit, a face-to-face -face visit. If there's no cell service, if there's no high-speed internet, it becomes really problematic to try and do a, a telehealth visit over dial-up. And there still is dial-up internet in in some of these wow. rural areas, or you have to deal with satellite internet, which is not much better than dial-up. Yeah, catch as um, catch can. I live, I live uh, next to the main highway that goes north and south from Duluth to International Falls. I have three huge fiber cables that run in front of my house. I only got DSL service two years ago, wow. and it's, so that's coming in on copper. So if if we're in the primary corridors and we can't get fiber to the home and we can't get high-speed bandwidth. It's going to be a limiting factor for telehealth services in some of these remote areas. So that's why we're trying to build up access points that are within our network that we've already constructed through our telephone networks and our high-speed bandwidth networks. Uh -huh. So we've got places for patients to come to so they don't have to travel 100 miles or 120 miles. Maybe they only have to travel 20. So it's not perfect access, but it's better. Well, boy, that's a huge relief compared to the uh, alternatives. The alternatives are no access. No access to care. So. That's exactly right. Um, you talked about the, uh, the Reagan block grant and the threat that that posed uh, not long after you, <laughs> you really began to operate. Welcome to Health Center Funding. You're getting 20% less. Yeah. <laughs> what other threats has uh, Cook Area scenic waters faced over the years? I, th I think the, when we look at threats, one of the more difficult parts of healthcare is the constant changing in reimbursements. The reimbursement uh -huh. systems continually change. You know, in the early days of Medicare and Medicaid, everything was a discounted fee-for-service. Yeah. Then we went to a per visit rate and cost-based systems, and then we went to a prospective payment system. And now we're kind of in between a cost-based system and a prospective payment system. And the, the latest iterations of payment reform now are um, accountable care organizations and um, at-risk payments for uh, the total cost of care and trying to create different incentives. And I think when when these payment systems change and we see a, tr a trend to vertical integration and large health systems that are controlling the market, mm -hmm. uh, it presents a threat uh, to the small players in the system or the small providers. And the, the vertically integrated health systems are not necessarily all that concerned about how people access care in, in these small population bases. They're more concerned about uh, how many how many members do they have in their group? What's their total cost payments that's coming in on a capitation sure. basis? Uh, what are their incentives and how do they maintain uh, 
integrity within that system. And, and one of my biggest concerns for small health centers and for rural health centers too has been unintended consequences where you have all of these pressures for cost containment yeah. and better outcomes and better use of resources that when they change systems and they don't think what happens to the small entities, we get caught up in trying to adjust to something that we don't have a lot of depth of resources to adapt to. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's always, that's, that gives me sleepless nights. That's, that is a challenge now and for the future, uh, certainly is. Um, although I, I think our poor powers notwithstanding, <laughs> it's inexorably moving forward. And there's the yeah, there's there's certainly no change, no question, that more change is coming to the system. When yeah. you look at how much healthcare consumes out of the uh, gross national product, yeah. and how many tax dollars that we're spending on a national level for health services, yeah. that percentage is is reaching maximum capacity for the system to bear. Yeah, and. There are other needs that the government uh, has to attend to, federal and state services need to attend to. We're not going to see a time when 50% or 60% of the tax, tax revenues are spent on healthcare. It's just not, not sustainable. Yeah. So that means there, there has to be pressures uh, within the system to, to reduce that cost of care. And we have an aging population. And So demand is going this way and the pressure on the we resources. Have a, we have an increase way. in the number of patients just because of population growth. We have an aging population, which, which hits, the, hits the rural areas harder than, than yeah. urban areas because if you look at the demographics, it's a much higher percentage of Medicare age population in the rural areas. Oh, yes. And, and they're the least, they have the least ability to travel. So the care has to be delivered closer to home for them, but there's such cost pressures in the system, the question is whether it's sustainable and whether some of these small access points yeah. are sustainable. When I started in, um, in the late 70s in healthcare, since that point of time today to today, uh, over 2,000 small rural hospitals have closed. And that trend is not decreasing, that trend is accelerating where the hospitals are not sustainable, according to the to corporate medicine, let's say, or the large systems. Yeah. Uh, they're trying to find, the systems are trying to deliver economies of scale, and so their choices are to close rural facilities, rural hospitals, because there's potential cost savings. Yeah. But it's done at a risk to the patient communities and the people that Clearly really is. count on accessing care. And to a certain extent, we have that same issue with health centers that there has to be certain economies of scale. Um, we have cost pressures that if you are a small health center, it's extremely difficult to put in your own electronic health record. Sure. So you've got to do it through networks and you've got to do it in cooperation with other entities of, of like mind. And, and certainly health center models have been, uh, have had really good results of shared EMR platforms. and and uh, making EMRs available to health centers through a network format. That's gonna be crucial for the future as well. Not just, not just 
IT, but really actually care delivery, I Here, think. The, the whole point now is to focus on improving clinical outcomes. Yeah. And with improved clinical outcomes, we should be able to sustain or at least lessen the increases in, in cost of care. So if we can spend money wisely up front with primary care and better care management, patient uh, case management, yeah. uh, long term, that should save us through reductions in emergency room use, sure. reductions in hospital admissions and readmissions. But it, it takes those electronic platforms to track what's happening with patients and creating a vehicle that you can do data extraction when you're looking at case management for certain disease processes and certain care coordination that you want to do. If you don't have the data in a searchable system, you're not going to be able to be effective in, in managing uh, care and providing that care coordination, doing the recalls for patients when they, they need to come back to manage their diabetes or, or hypertension. Yeah. But that's, that's where the cost savings are. And so you've got to be able to um, have the systems in place to, to do that. Robust primary care, good information technology, care management techniques that, uh, that emphasize prevention and wellness. Uh, we know all the markers of the roadmap to uh, better health and reduced spending. True. So why haven't policymakers, decision makers, and the, the, the poobahs who are responsible for managing health care recognize that and move toward that in whether it's in payment systems or in structuring health care uh, for the future? That's a good question because as long as I've been involved with health care, we've been under health care reform. Yeah. Everybody has a great idea of this is the new model for health care that's yeah. going to have all of these grand results. But the devil is always in the details, and any type of payment reform that comes into place, some people may think they're winning, some people think they may be losing, and so they may work to block some of those changes in yeah. the system. And so it's a long, slow process to try and, and get reform. Yeah. Uh, how we trained providers in the early days where it was more of a production model where you tried to see as many patients as you could and that would generate certain income levels. To say now that you're not in that production mode and you want to be in a total care mode, the reimbursement systems still don't adequately address the time that you need to spend with a patient to deliver meaningful care yeah. because it's not in a production basis. And so the Medicaid system is different from the Medicare system. The commercial insurance system is somewhat different from uh, the governmental payer systems. And then we still have the uninsured and undercompensated care pieces. Yeah. With the change in, in commercial insurance, with the desire to have patients have skin in the game to try and gain cost containment, yeah. what we've ended up is with a block of patients that are functionally uninsured for primary care. They're insured because once their total costs hit certain thresholds, which may help specialty care cost and coverage, it may help institutionalized cost and coverage, let's say 
hospital admissions, but for primary care purposes, if you've got a $5,000 deductible or $6,000 family, family deductible, sure. in essence, you're uninsured. So patients will delay care. They will scrimp on their uh, prescriptions, yeah. which uh, could help them. The uh, prescription therapies could, could help them. And so there may be access issues there. And it just complicates the the delivery system. Short-term pressure relief, but long-term deep problems. Absolutely. Deep yogurt. Oh, the future. <laughs> it's bright and cheery indeed, isn't it? I'm, I'm hopeful of the future. You know, I, as I've seen the health centers grow over the years, and when we started, the, the health center programs were a couple hundred million dollars. And we could fit everybody in a smaller, conference room and that was all of us. And and now when I look at 14, 1500 organizations and health centers and taking care of 28 million patients, yeah. maybe we're at 29 million patients this year, yeah. might be 30 million next year. We're seeing more and more of our population, patient population in this country. And I think that impact that we have the connection that the health centers have with the patients is important because I think we can we can help them address their their health status. We can help them feel better. We can improve their health mm -hmm. outcomes. And I think Congress and I think the nation is starting to see that health centers can provide solutions not only to uninsured access or low income access or geographic access in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. But we're there to also address some of the uh, nation's problems that have come up uh, over the last couple of decades, whether it was HIV, uh, now we're dealing with the opioid issues. And yep. it seems like Congress uh, uh, is turning to health centers for solutions. And, and I think we're showing some really good success in dealing with very difficult uh, patient populations. And the more yeah. we do, I think the more we'll be asked to do. Well, that's, you know, it's, it, I, I think our whole history has been, as I think you've said more than once, running toward the fire. Uh, when something breaks out, it's typically health centers who are on the front lines because these things break out in the very communities that health centers e exist in and serve. Uh, but instead of running away from the problem, we've run toward it to try to address as best we can uh, and resolve these issues. Uh, absolutely. I think we saw that now with the, the opioid issues and the fact that it was a growing crisis in the country. But health centers started working and addressing the opioid issues four or five years ago yeah. as we started to see those dependencies in some of our patient population. We started working uh, with that block of patients to see how we can improve their care, how we can better management, better provide patient management for, for patients with, with chronic pain, mm -hmm. and whether we were being a part of the solution or being part of the problem. And so we had a head start because we needed to. And, and part of it is just our connection with our patients. Health centers are embedded in the communities and their patients are there, you know, we don't have diff distant corporate offices yeah. that have uh, no contact with the, the patients we care for. 
we're right there. We're there. On the front lines. Front lines, like 11,000 sites and growing. Yeah. Congratulations, Mr. Chair-elect. Thank you so uh, much. I feel very co confident in the future of health centers with you at the helm of NAC. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. All right, buddy. You take care.